This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners, to a brand new 2017-2018 season. It's our second season as me as your host, and we have the same fantastic team who left off last season joining us again to carry us through another exciting year reviewing the medical literature as it is published. I am joined today by our fantastic producer, Emily Hughes, who's been with the team since I joined uh, last year, and she is now a medical student starting clerkship at the University of Toronto. She is going to help us kick off this fantastic season with an article that she has chosen for this week. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kieran. So as always, you know I like to get right into things. There's nothing else to talk about right now, so why don't you take us through your article for the week? Absolutely. So the article I chose was published in June 2017 in JAMA Internal Medicine. It's titled Older Adults' Views and Communication Preferences About Cancer Screening. So Emily, what is the bottom line for this article? Well, this qualitative study of 40 adults over the age of 65 living in the community found that older adults were open to stopping cancer screening in the context of a trusting relationship with a clinician. Study participants did not consider life expectancy important in decisions around cancer screening and often did not prefer to hear about life expectancy when discussing screening. That is astounding. I always would have thought that that would be the important thing to frame these discussions in. Well, I can't wait to hear more, so let's have you tell me why you chose this article and frame it in the context of its importance in the medical literature. Sure. So, as a med student, I feel as though I'm constantly learning about the latest cancer screening guidelines, but I don't really have a great idea about how to communicate this information to patients, especially information surrounding screening cessation. So for conversations that happen a lot, it makes sense to me that we should investigate how best to have these discussions in a patient-centered way. Choosing Wisely recommends that clinicians should not routinely screen for cancer in patients with limited life expectancy. But from what I've seen, this is not what happens in practice. Many older adults with limited life expectancy are still frequently screened. Only a few studies have examined older adults' thoughts on cancer screening cessation. Better articulated approaches for these discussions will help to optimize patient-centered care. So this sounds like a study that's not going to be easily answered by simply doing a quantitative review of some data that exists out in the world already, or even potentially collecting it yourself. I sense a different approach. Emily, what did they do to answer this important question? You're exactly right. So this was a qualitative study in which participants took part in semi-structured interviews. So for those of listeners who don't aren't familiar with semi-structured interviews, essentially this means that the interviewer and interviewee engage in a formal interview following an interview guide developed by the interviewer. So the interviews were semi-structured in the sense that conversations were allowed to stray from the guide when the interviewer felt it was appropriate. So in this study, participants were recruited from four clinical programs affiliated with a single urban academic medical center. And what kind of uh, settings did those include? So these included a geriatric ambulatory clinic, a general internal medicine ambulatory clinic, a house call program for homebound older adults, and a program of all-inclusive care of the elderly. And the study took place out of John Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So who did they include in this study to get at the essence of their question? Well, patients were eligible to participate if they were over the age of 65, English-speaking, and able to provide informed consent, and 40 individuals participated in the study in total. 
How did they determine whom to interview from this inclusion criteria? So this gets back a little bit to qualitative methods. So in this study, the researchers use a purposive method using maximum variation sampling. And I realize that's a huge mouthful. So a purposive sample is essentially a non-probability sample that's selected based on characteristics of a population and the objective of the study. So in other words, you're not looking to try to get a random selection of people in the population, but rather you have a very discrete set of opinions that you want to gather and purpose of sampling accomplishes this. Is this correct? Exactly. That's correct. And a subtype of purposive sampling is maximum variation sampling, which is what was used in this study. So essentially, maximum variation sampling aims to sample a wide variety of extremes. And the idea is that you de- if you deliberately try to interview a very different selection of people, their aggregate answers can be close to the whole population's. I would think an analogy would be sort of a regression to the mean if you're a quantitative researcher in its terms. So Emily, given the fact that we're talking about life expectancy or rather elderly individuals with limited life expectancy, I would imagine that cognitive impairment might go hand in hand with some of these individuals. What did they do about their inclusion and exclusion when it came to cognitive impairment? So you're absolutely right, Kieran. Cognitive impairment does affect the risk to benefit ratio of screening patients with cognitive impairment were still included in the study if they could participate meaningfully in the interview and provide written informed consent. All right, I have a fairly clear picture of who they're trying to to include in their study. What did they do? The objective for this study aimed to explore older adults' perspectives on screening cessation when life expectancy is limited and aimed to examine their preferences on how clinicians should communicate the decision to stop screening. So how they did this was before the interview, each participant completed a questionnaire that collected demographic information, health and functional status, and the reported trust in their clinician. Based on the information collected, four in 10 year mortality risk was estimated using a validated index. And in these semi-structured interviews, what did they ask individuals about with regards to their decision-making? With regards to their decision-making, participants were asked about four things. The first, considerations around the decision to stop screening. Secondly, reactions if their clinician was to recommend that they stop screening. Third, perceived importance of health and functional status in screening decisions, including life expectancy. And lastly, views on hypothetical examples about screening when age and health status were discordant. Participants were then asked about their preferences surrounding different communication strategies for clinicians to use, when discussing screening cessation with a hypothetical patient. So how is the data from these interviews collected and subsequently analyzed? One investigator conducted all interviews in person. The audio was transcribed and analyzed with transcripts continuously reviewed and assessed for the emergence of new ideas or themes. Data collection continued until no new ideas were emerging and theme saturation was reached. So what was the so-called primary outcomes when it came to this study? So qualitative evaluation of older adults' perspectives on the decision to stop cancer screening when life expectancy is limited and preferences on how clinicians should communicate the decision to stop screening via interviews with the participating patients and outcomes were reported as overall themes touched on by the participants. Sounds reasonable. What did they find? So three main themes were uncovered through the qualitative content analysis. The first was that older adults were open to considering screening cessation. 
and old age was the most common reason. Many participants cited a trusting relationship with their clinician as a reason they would consider stopping screening. If their clinician suggested it, and they trusted their clinician, they would consider stopping. The second main theme was a misperception of the role of life expectancy, and I thought this was a really interesting point of this study. Participants understood that health status and age are important in individualizing screening decisions, but they often did not perceive life expectancy as directly related to health status and age. All except two participants objected to or questioned the choosing wisely statement, don't recommend screening if patient is not likely to live 10 years. And the reasons given for this included skepticism about life expectancy predictions by the clinician, skepticism about screening's lag time to benefit, and perceived negativity of the statement. Hmm. So it's not necessarily what you ask them, but sometimes how you phrase it and how you ask them that can influence their decision and their perception of the question. That absolutely seemed to be the message behind this result. So what was the third theme that they identified? So the third main theme was around communication preferences, exactly what you were getting at with a clinician's choice of language about how they communicate certain information. And the communication strategy that mentioned health and functional status was preferred as participants felt as though their clinicians were personalizing recommendations. For example, a statement that patients generally liked was, when people have these medical conditions like you and need help from day-to-day -day activities like you, this test can cause more harm than benefit. And participants were split on whether or not clinicians should mention life expectancy in counseling on screening cessation. If life expectancy was mentioned, phrasing was important. Most participants preferred the statement, this test would not help you live longer, instead of, you may not live long enough to benefit from this test. Any other important limitations or in the qualitative world, we would say sort of threats to credibility of this particular study? Sure. So maybe there were a few. Participants were recruited from one academic center, and the experiences may not be transferable to other contexts. All participants had regular clinicians and very high levels of trust in their clinicians. They rated their trust in their clinicians as 4.7 out of 5, 5 being the highest level of trust that they could possibly have. And you know, this may not be representative of other populations of older adults. As well, some of the interview questions used hypothetical scenarios and may not be representative of participant behaviors or responses in real life. I think those are really valid points. You certainly meet a lot of individuals uh, in my practice whose trust in their primary care physicians or other specialty physicians in their life can be sometimes much lower than what's reported in this study. Um, and I think that's really a critical component to recommendations that we make to our patients. So uh, I couldn't agree more. So Emily, just for our listeners, we've talked about a lot of stuff here. What do you think on the overall balance and strengths of this study? Any concerns? Overall, you know, I thought this was a well-conducted qualitative study, which gathered in-depth perspectives on a topic which little was previously known. In order to apply the findings more generally, it might be useful to expand on the study to several centers and increase the sample size. Yeah, and I guess the only thing I would say is saturation was reached within their sample, you know, purpose of sampling that they had. So that, that suggests that they had sort of an adequate representation of, of individuals. But I think that maybe a different population needs to be examined and probably one where you could look at patients who have less trust in their clinicians to see if these are reproducible findings. So who does this study apply to? How can we translate this knowledge to our clinical practice? 
So this study applies to a 76-year-old male or female who is expected to live less than 10 years. This patient would have a regular clinician whom they have a long-standing and trusting relationship. And bring it home for us. What's the main takeaway point and learning points for our listeners? I would say that the main takeaway of the article is that older adults are amenable to cancer screening cessation, but the way in which this decision is communicated by the clinician is important. Many older adults prefer not to discuss life expectancy as part of the decision to stop screening. Yet these same adults view health status as important to frame the conversation. Will this change the way that you approach discussions around cancer screening with patients that you're about to come across in your clerkship? (laughs) Absolutely. The language in which clinicians use to communicate is so important in how the patient perceives the care that they are receiving. We can't have patient-centered care without patient-centered research backing that care. I think that this article really is a great example of patient-centered research. As I said before, I think that's the reflective beauty of qualitative research. Well, thank you, Emily, for that. I found that to be a very engaging article, and I appreciate you bringing that forward. I'm going to move on now to the article that I chose for the week, and it is a large sort of a big data study that looked at coffee drinking and mortality in 10 European countries. This was published in July of this year in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Mark Gunter and his team of researchers. I think I'm afraid to ask this next question, but I know that I have to. Uh, What is the bottom line or main message for this article? Well, you know that I chose this article for a specific reason is that we drink a lot of coffee. And in this prospective cohort study of over half a million individuals, that were enrolled in a cohort study called the EPIC study, the European Prospective Investigation into Cancer and Nutrition, that entailed 10 European countries. They found that coffee drinking was associated with reduced death by a margin of about 10% over 16 years from all causes in both men and women. Well, this does sound pretty epic to me. Why did you choose this article personally, or why is it important for our listeners to know about? Ah, you're stealing my puns. I have very few left already. (laughs) Excellent work. I thought, what better way to kick off a new season of the rounds table than a big data study? Those of you who know me know that I like palliative care and I like big data. Some things that don't always go hand in hand. But it's related to something that many of us do, many of us being clinicians, many of us being researchers, many of us being human beings uh, that we do on a daily basis. Drink coffee. Some of us drink lots of it. About 2.25 billion cups are consumed every day across the world. Now, there's prior studies that have demonstrated a link with coffee drinking and lower inflammation, cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance, and development of diabetes. So there's biologic plausibility that all of these effects may lead to lower risk of death. However, the results have been mixed on the association between coffee drinking and death. Some Some studies have been too small to detect a difference. And others haven't looked at cause-specific associations, so we don't really know what's driving the results. So this study sought to examine both cause-specific and all-cause death on a larger scale using a European population. Take us through the methods. What was the design of the study, and where did it take place? This is a very ambitious undertaking, and I'm quite impressed with the study overall. It was a prospective cohort study, so big data by looking at a lot of people, not retrospectively. And and they enrolled these individuals in the EPIC study, which was a large multinational cohort that captured country-specific coffee preparation methods. So who were the patients in the study? So over half a million individuals, they were all aged 35 years or older, 
were recruited from 23 centers between the years of 1992 to 2000, so an 8-year recruitment study, and it was predominantly from the general population in 10 different European countries. Uh, and they're the 10 European countries that you would, you know, would first come to mind as the most prominent, so to speak, in Europe, Britain, Scotland, Finland, Denmark, Germany, France, etc. They excluded participants who had reported cancer, heart disease, stroke, or diabetes in their medical history, and also those who uh, were in the highest and lowest 1% of total energy intake to estimated energy requirement. Basically, you just want people who fall within the normal amount of what they eat and how much is expected that they need on a daily basis based on their height and weight and physical activity levels. Finally, obviously, if you didn't know the information on coffee consumption about somebody or they didn't follow up, then they were excluded from the analysis, which was to look at coffee consumption and death. Okay. So what was the primary question of this study? Plain and simple. They wanted to examine whether coffee consumption is associated with all-cause and cause-specific mortality. To do this, they measured dietary intake using several validated self-reported questionnaires and interviews, and they were tailored to reflect each individual country's local culture. So when I said it was ambitious, they developed several of these questionnaires just to fit a particular country's cultural eating habits, which was kind of impressive. Oh, sounds like an undertaking for sure. Then they took lifestyle questionnaires to obtain all sorts of information on an individual's education, smoking, alcohol, consumption, physical activity, etc. And finally, participants recorded the number of coffee cups consumed per month, week, or day. Coffee consumption, which was measured in milliliters per day ultimately, was calculated using the typical sizes of cups for each center. So, you know, that leaves some element of variability between an individual country's typical size of cups of coffee. So keep that in mind. And then finally, individuals were classified according to their quartile, where in the 25 percentiles did they fit in regards to coffee consumption. Finally, they wanted to get some biological biomarkers, so to speak, that could also back up their interview and self-reported data. So they measured you know, a variety of liver tests, your CRP levels, cholesterol levels, and your hemoglobin A1C in a random sample of 16,000 individuals from the just over half a million people in the study. All right. Sounds pretty robust. What were the main findings of the study? So the first thing is to answer about why did they die? There was 40,000 deaths in the 16-year mean follow-up time. About just under half were from cancer. A quarter were from circulatory disease. About 2,000 are from cerebrovascular diseases, ischemic heart diseases. And then you get down into some smaller numbers from digestive diseases, respiratory diseases, and external causes or suicide. But the big bulk was made up by circulatory diseases and cancer. If you adjusted those mortality rates to an age-adjusted rate, you saw that about 100 people per 10,000 person years died. So if you followed 100 people for a year, one of them would die. How much coffee was consumed? Quite a, quite a large range. The range of coffee consumption in this study was between 90 to 900 milliliters per day. And now getting into the meat of it, can you tell me what they found with regards to mortality? Well, they found a non-dose dependent reduction in all-cause mortality of about 10%. That broke down to about 5% in, in risk in women and 15% risk reduction in men. And, and that's after you adjusted for all these different covariates that may impact on mortality, such as smoking, diet, etc., all the stuff we talked about. 
and you compared that to non-coffee drinkers to create that relative risk. They found that these results were consistent across the multiple cause-specific categories, like digestive diseases or cardiovascular diseases, etc. And they also found that they were corroborated by the serum biomarker measurements. This is reassuring me about my daily coffee habit. Are there any interesting points or observations you wanted to make about this study? Anything that caught your eye? Well, don't be so reassured. The findings that they had before they adjusted for all of those different confounders were associated with an increased risk of death. But the reverse occurred after you adjusted for all those different differences. And some criticisms of this study have called this an instability in the findings, which raise serious concerns about the validity of the results. Which, in other words, the findings of a reduced risk of death with coffee drinking may be just explainable by bias introduced into the study alone and not the actual causative factor of coffee drinking itself. Not as reassuring as I was hoping for. Any other limitations? Yeah, another interesting point is that the mean age in the study at enrollment was 50 years old. Now, if you think about it, the average coffee drinker begins drinking coffee at around the age of 20 or so. So there's 30 years of coffee drinking that is unaccounted for in this study. What does that mean? How can that affect the results? Well, something called survivorship bias is at play. So if you took a whole bunch of people between the age of 20 and 50 who were drinking coffee and not drinking coffee during that time, and let's say, for example, a whole bunch of them who drank coffee happened to die off for various reasons, including potentially that coffee influences an increased risk of death, you're going to be left with a group of people, of coffee drinkers, who are ultimately selected out as the survivors because they didn't die earlier on. And it can give you an artificial sense that coffee is protective in that sense, rather than the truth, which may be something totally different. So Kieran, it sounds like there are definitely some strengths to this study, but also some weaknesses. Can you tell me what is your overall take? I mean, I, I have to say, as I said at the beginning, I am very impressed with the ambitious nature of this large cohort study that really tried to measure a lot of the different factors that may influence somebody's risk of death to try to get the essence of what the causation of coffee has on, on somebody's risk of death. But one thing that they didn't measure was socioeconomic status. And we've seen that time and time again to be so critically linked to mortality. And it could have been done in the original design. So I really think that the overall findings in all of the concerns I had mentioned above, plus the lack of socioeconomic status measured, really threatens the overall findings. And potentially what all we're seeing is the association of coffee drinking with death with a reduced risk of death as a consequence of systematic bias introduced into the study and not actually the effects of coffee themselves. And what would you say the main learning points are from this article? Well, the main takeaway for me is that the things that we know that are good for your health, not smoking, exercising regularly, eating a healthy diet, remain true and seem to impact upon your mortality, as is having a higher socioeconomic status. But I'm not sure that coffee can be added to the list of things to do to maintain a healthy lifestyle as of yet. Darn, I wasn't hoping for that conclusion. Will this change the way in which you practice in this area? I'd say first, will it change my coffee drinking habits? Absolutely not. I need far too much of it to stay awake on call overnight. So coffee drinking, I will continue. But I think 
overall, as I'm talking to my patients, as with all things of life, keep things in moderation is a generally good principle to live by. So when it comes to coffee drinking and my patients have questions around it, I'll say, I'm not sure about your overall impact on mortality, but if you drink it in moderation, it's likely not going to harm you uh, or protect you in any given way. Thanks, Kieran. That was a really interesting article. All right. New season, but old habits die hard. My favorite part of the show, as always, it's the good stuff segment, where we're talking about what we're reading about. Emily, what caught your eye this week in the news? So unfortunately, my good stuff might be better titled a bad stuff segment. A recent JAMA study that's been buzzing around my news feeds is titled Clinico-Pathological Evaluation of Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy in Players of American Football. The study investigated the brains of 202 deceased players of American football, including 111 former NFL players. CTE was neuropathologically diagnosed in 177 of the total 202. And even more interestingly, of the 111 former NFL players, researchers found that 110 of them, 99%, had neuropathological changes from postmortem that were consistent with CTE. The most severe cases were noted in athletes that had played the longest and at the highest levels. And just a clinical note, CTE is associated with repeated blows to the head, including concussions, and symptoms can include difficulty with attention and memory, dementia, mood disorders, and headache. So the study is very suggestive that CTE may be related to prior participation in football. But to put a positive spin on this bad stuff, hopefully this study will encourage greater emphasis on safety precautions for athletes, particularly football players. I couldn't agree more. My sons both wear helmets whenever they do anything with potential risk of hitting their head. They're not old enough to play football yet, but if they ever do, helmet-wearing they shall be. I like this bad stuff uh, terminology. Maybe we'll have a balanced good stuff, bad stuff week to week. Let's see how it evolves. Thank you for that, Emily. Well, my good stuff segment this week looked at the experiencing of phenomena in a crowd. At the time of this recording... We just experienced the solar eclipse that may not come around again in any of our lifetimes. And there was an interesting article in the New York Times health section on why some say the eclipse is best experienced in a massive crowd. It boiled down to four different things that these behavioral scientists propose. First, that you achieve maximum emotional intensity by viewing it in a crowd. Seeing our own emotions reflected in the faces of others around us validates our own experience and amplifies the intensity of our feelings. Second, connecting with strangers. If you ask soccer fans what they like about watching a match with a crowd, the emotional intimacy with strangers and a sense of shared social identity turns out to be a favorite part of the experience. Third, there's no need to fear such crowds. A crowd that gathers to protest something, researchers say, operates very differently than a crowd that gathers to enjoy an experience. And finally, the idea of totality. Like being in a dark closet is associated with an adrenaline rush unparalleled by many other experiences. When you share that in complete darkness due to a solar eclipse, say in Oregon, thousands of others around you who are experiencing it adds to the totality of that experience. And I'd say... Even if you have overflowing porta potties, it should have been a heck of an experience to see for those who are lucky enough to share. Hey, a great good stuff to round out the bad stuff. <laughs> well, Emily, 
great show, great kickoff to the season. I look forward to a great second season here on the rounds table. And who better to have started it off with with than you, our fantastic Thank you so much, Kieran. Talk to everybody next week. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable, follow us on Twitter at Roundstable, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.